So first of all, I should say, I define this word hype, which I know a lot of people consider as a negative. I define it in my own way. I define it as any set of activities that will get a large number of people or a group of people emotional to get them to take the action you want them to take. And that can be a negative action or a positive action, like buying your stuff or listening to your podcast. Welcome to Grounded Content. I'm your host, Marian Abrams. This is the show for content creators and content strategists. Whether you're a podcaster or whether you work in a marketing department running a social media channel, we're all professional content creators or thinking about content creation. And this is the place where I talk to you. Today's guest is Michael Shine. Michael's book, The Hype Handbook, has a subtitle, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. This is a fun and thoughtful conversation about where those lines are between persuasion and manipulation and how we can harness these tools to help us with our goals. Before we go any further, I want to read a little piece from the introduction of his book, The Hype Handbook. In a perfect world, the best work would attract the most attention on its own merits. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Instead, the single most important factor that determines whether something becomes a phenomenon or a flop is arguably the least understood. An ephemeral combination of manufactured drama, media manipulation, and behind-the-scenes maneuvering. Michael has made it a study to understand the art of hype and to look into the associations it has with negative movements and how it can be harnessed for positive movements or even for professional gain, for selling your book, promoting your podcast, or convincing people that something you truly believe in is right. Now, speaking of hype, some of you have podcasts and some of you are wondering why you're not getting the results from them that you're looking for. I'm starting a 90-day cohort-based, group-based process. If you want to find out more about that, reach out to me any place you find me on social media or go to madmotion.com and click on the Grow Your Podcast tab. All right, let's get into Michael Shine and I'll be back to talk a little bit more. Michael F. Shine, I'm so glad you're here. So first of all, thank you for starting out that way. And I'd love to hear, how did you get into this? How did you start thinking about hype in this way? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of the immediate version that led me to start thinking about ideas like the one you just read. And then there's the life story version. The immediate version was that because I was interested in these ideas, in how groups of people get highly emotional and are attracted to ideas that they may not otherwise be attracted to, products, ideas, causes, whatever. I would often find that on balance, especially recently, a lot of people whose ideas I found to be quite pernicious and negative seem to do this very, very well, whereas other people whose ideas I thought were quite good have a really hard time at getting large numbers of people excited. And I got very curious about, is that because that getting people emotional and attracting people to ideas is in its very nature a negative thing? Because if it is, we should fight that, right? We should fight that sort of stuff. Or is it that negative or people we don't like are better at doing it, but the techniques are, are just neutral? And it turns out I really became convinced that it's the latter because, A, there are good people who have used some of the same underlying strategies. I mean, the example I love to use is Martin Luther King. No one was a better master at the media. If, like, if people think of the courage that those people had with the water hoses, which is true. But if the news hadn't been around and if they hadn't framed those shots in the right way, it wouldn't have worked. So that was part of it. And the other part is that 
bad, quote unquote, people are just better at this because they don't let their emotions get in the way. There's a phenomenon, you know, antisocial personality disorder, narcissists, psychopaths, when they put them in lab conditions and they put them in interpersonally stressful situations and measure their pulse, their pulse doesn't go up. So they just do what needs to be done without letting their emotions get in the way. So I said, what if I could give people with good ideas who are doing good things the ability to ethically have this same effect? And that's where I got interested in it. It was sort of my righteous indignation at some of the nastiness that was going on. So I love this idea. And it's something that I've talked to people a lot about because I've been in the media my whole life. I remember having, you know, a friend of a friend who was an author and she had written a scholarly book that had been a lifetime of research. And I had another friend that had a bestseller that wasn't nearly as well written. And she was so indignant. And she said, how did he do it? And I said, you know, he did thousands of interviews and, you know, all the things that she did. And she was really dismissive of that. And I thought that's just as legitimate a skill set. And so I think we have this instinct, like an intellectual side, to kind of be dismissive of these techniques In addition to that, the fact that it's a skill set and that it takes work, it's a function of whether you want to see the world as it is or whether you want to see the world as it ought to be. I mean, your friend who didn't get the sales, that's really nice that she or he, you know, put all this energy into the scholarly research and all of this stuff. And if we lived in a utopia, that's even a better book. I haven't read the two books, but if it's better, (laughs) that book would do better. But you know, that's not the world we live in. I mean, human beings do not make decisions rationally. Human beings make decisions emotionally. They make decisions in groups. They make decisions through various filters. They need to be exposed to things. They value complicated ideas presented simply. So this concept that like shoulda, coulda, woulda, it shouldn't be that way. Well, you know, that and 75 cents or maybe a dollar now will get you a Coke, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter. You know, I work with a lot of podcasters and this is really an issue, right? Because we know that 50% of the podcasts out there are getting like 125 downloads per episode. And there's a lot of people that think their podcast is great and they can't understand why no one's listening to it. And if people don't know you're there, they're not going to find it no matter how good it is. So what are some of those things that you think are really relevant today? So first of all, I should say I define this word hype, which I know a lot of people consider as a negative. I define it in my own way. I define it as any set of activities that will get a large number of people or a group of people emotional to get them to take the action you want them to take. And that can be a negative action or a positive action, like buying your stuff or listening to your podcast. So because it's neutral and because I have an ethical code and the people I work with as clients or the people I write for, I'm very proud to call myself a hype artist. So in that process, I researched, in addition to the experiments I did as a professional, you know, hype artist. I work with companies and people to do this kind of work. I read biographies. I looked at papers. And the exercise I wanted to go through was all of these people, whether they're cult leaders or Richard Branson or everyone in between, are they just all over the map in how they do this? Because if there are, there's nothing much to be learned. It's just a charisma thing. Or are there principles that repeat over and over again? And it turned out there really are. I mean, there are 12 repeating things, the content totally different. But the psychological factors at play, you see them over and over. And I'll answer it in two ways. The first strategy in the book is almost the bedrock strategy. It's make war, not love. So what it basically says is that you need to draw lines in the sand. People are much more attracted to being against something and not necessarily a person. It could be being against an idea 
as they are to being for something. But, you know, one that's very appropriate for the thing that you're talking about, let's say podcasts, it's a principle that I call create a secret society. So the myth about promotion and self-promotion is that you have to build everything grassroots. So, you know, you just keep putting your stuff out. If you build it, they will come. People will read what you did or find it organically or consistency will drive people. What the best hype artists do is they make it seem like their growth is grassroots because that's very romantic. But what they typically do is they nurture relationships beneath the scenes with what I call human pressure points. And the way they do that is they give up things over time that are cheap for them to give up, but very valuable to them. So let's say you have knowledge in a certain field and you can advise people on that and it's easy for you to do, but they can't get that knowledge elsewhere. They'll come to really value you. And then let's say you launch a podcast. If you've done that for a while, you call your five friends who have massive followings and say, listen, you know, it's kind of like calling your friend for help moving a couch. It's like, could you do me a favor and share the thing? And suddenly your thing blows up and everyone thinks it's grassroots. So I would look at what people really do versus what they say they do. That's so interesting because that story you just told, that example, to me, that is grassroots. Like to me, that is sort of organic grassroots as you build relationships and these people are supporting you. But I guess you have to make the ask. It didn't just magically happen. You know, all of these are just terms. But let's look at your hypothetical friend, your author, who's against this kind of stuff. I, again, I don't know her and this might not be her. But I could imagine her saying, look, if my book is really good, people will find it. They'll spread it by word of mouth, person to person, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the only reason that other person is successful is because they have an old boys network. You hear that term a lot, right? They're tapped into an old boys network. They know people. Maybe. But could it be that you could build your own old boys or old girls or old anybody's network? In other words, it's a function of how you frame this stuff. So I like that you consider that grassroots. But a lot of people would say it's not grassroots because you got people to pull strings for you. You know what I mean? So it's about setting those preconceptions aside. Yeah, I love that you separate the sort of the activity of hype from what we think of as the negative associations like the cult leader. And so how do we get the cult leader techniques for good? I love your story, of course, of you called out Gary Vaynerchuk. Why don't you tell the story and then I'll ask my follow up question because the listeners don't already know this story. One day this thing will be on my tombstone. I, I'm starting to fear this will be like the only thing I'm known for in, in my life. But, you know, I ended up at this corporate job and I was there for eight years. And by the end, I was really tired of it and tired of the fact that I wasn't brave enough to quit. So I eventually did. And I was going to be a freelance copywriter. And, you know, I've always been a good writer. People always told me that. So I figured, again, like your friend, if you build it, they will come. It turned out I couldn't get any clients and I almost went broke. And so... That's when I got serious about hype. I drew actually on my old past, like when we would play punk rock shows, we would hype them up. So I said, what if I stopped thinking about marketing and trying to crack marketing and started thinking about hype? And one of the things we always liked about the punk movement was the way that they would agitate people in power. So like the famous Sex Pistols, they had this song, God Save the Queen, where they called the queen a fascist. And that's kind of like peeing on the flag in England, you know? And during her Silver Jubilee, they put a boat down the Thames River playing that song and got arrested. And Richard Branson was on that boat. He was the record company and, and whatever. So I was like, who's the guru in our kind of like content marketing industry? And I would always see Gary Vaynerchuk, who 
everyone just accepted without question as being this very wise person because he would constantly tell young people to make it in the social media era. And he's so confident. He never shows any self-doubt, he would say, which is a hype tactic itself. But he would constantly say, you got to work like a dog three o'clock in the morning. You should be tweeting, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember thinking that's really bad advice for young people starting out because not everyone is a full-time social media marketer. Some people have to build the business. Also, it's a, a recipe for burnout. Also, why does Vaynerchuk keep getting richer and his fans keep worshiping Vaynerchuk and they're still broke, right? So I was writing a column for Inc. at the time, which I talked myself into. And I wrote a column, which I was writing for for free at the time. And I wrote a column called Why Gary Vaynerchuk is Flat Out Wrong. And very respectfully, I laid out this argument. And I was nobody. I mean, I was just doing poorly at my career at this time. And he responded by video like two hours later and was extremely agitated. And all his followers started bad-mouthing me. And I mean, it was the start of my career. I got all this notoriety, all these followers. There were all these people who felt the way I did, who didn't have a leader. And now I was their leader, and I can pretty much trace everything back to this moment. The way you tell this story, it becomes more clear than it was in the book. Because what I wondered is, a guy with his sense of the social media world, you know, I almost thought, well, maybe he knew he was doing you a favor. Like, this was a very generous act of him to call you out publicly in a video like that. Or do you think he was just pissed off? That is very perceptive of you because that's what happened once he got his emotions under control. So he recorded this video, and when he started the video, he was very nice. And by the end, he went off. And I think he's a hothead. I mean, I think that's part of the reason that he's successful. He's got a lot of drive and a lot of energy, but I think I hit him where it hurts, you know? I don't think he liked being called out on the fact that his advice wasn't good. He's that guy, right? So I also think he underestimated me. He figured I was just some schmo and he could call me out and that was it. And what happened was the thing blew up and everyone started debating it and much of it was negative. So this went on for like two days straight and my Twitter kept growing as people badmouthed me and they were his fans, the Vaniacs. So this was the telling thing that happened. About two days in, this guy says to me on Twitter, he's gone back and forth, he goes, I would say more to you, but Gary told us not to reply to any more of this thread. So eventually, I guess Gary cooled down and he found out that this guy from nowhere had totally like generated all of this press and it wasn't really helping him. It was bringing attention to a negative issue because if you really dig in logically, you realize the flaws in his argument and he doesn't want that. So he finally realized what was going on and like little like ducklings following their mother the thing just went bop it just like disappeared as soon as he put out the order and that really showed me how powerful that guy is and i think he's a perfectly moral legitimate business person and many of his businesses are great but it just showed me when i reverse engineered the strategies he uses they are so similar i mean he uses this one strategy fetishizing work you know the hustle thing the moonies do that they talk about salvation through work and they have their people work 60 hours a day for salvation and it evangelizes them and it bonds the followers to the leader. And that's exactly what Gary does, whether or not he does it consciously. That's so interesting. And so this could have been just a big blip and then it fades away. But it sounds like you had some mechanisms to kind of capitalize on that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of targeted experimentation. So I'll often develop a framework and 
within the parameters of that framework, I'll experiment. So over time, I've developed this framework that I call hype, these 12 strategies. But back then, it was very fledgling. So I was trying all kinds of experiments. And I had tried all kinds of things. But whenever I would write an article that was about the inner workings of what I now call hype, where I would call out a guru and kind of reverse engineer how they did what they did and how maybe you should follow what they do, not what they preach. I mean, it would blow up. And so like I did one on Simon Sinek. And to this day, I think it has 200 something thousand views. I get clients from it all the time. It was years ago. And then I would do an article about something else and it would be like, eh, you know, so I just started seeing this pattern and that Gary article was so much fun for me. And I had nothing to lose at the time. I wasn't doing well. I was failing at the time. You know, maybe if I had been doing better, I would have been more conservative, but I was like trying anything. But that worked really well. And so I said, well, who are some of these other people who I kind of see the emperor and the lack of clothing, right? So I wrote this one called Tony Robbins is a big fat jerk. And here's why you should follow his lead. And it did really well. And then I got a letter or Forbes got a letter from his people. And I had to defend all the points in the article and everything I said was accurate. So they couldn't say anything. So what are some of the things that Tony Robbins and Simon Sinek do that you pulled out in those articles? Yeah, so I actually cut the Tony Robbins stuff, so I'll start there. The Simon Sinek stuff is in the book. But what you'll see with a lot of hype artists, I call it being the magus. People like to look up to someone who is this larger-than-life character who they can sort of pin their hopes and dreams on. So Tony Robbins has this multi-million dollar business, but it's not called, I don't know, Personal Growth Inc. It's Tony Robbins, right? And he uses his strengths to his advantage, or some might say weaknesses. A lot of what people do is they flip their weaknesses into strengths, but he's very, very large. And you can consider that a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your taste. But he uses that. He has this gravelly voice and his posture is perfect and he's massive. And he gets up on stage and he claps sideways like this in this booming clap. He makes it known that he speaks without stop for eight hours at a stretch. It's like Richard Branson with his hot air balloon or Thomas Edison staying in the lab all night. The other thing he does is he uses chanting, loud music, lights. He creates a sense of transcendence in people. He has them chant the same thing over and over. If you see a rock concert or a religious revival, they do the same thing. He doesn't have any doubt in what he says. There's a clip circulating on the internet that says, watch Tony Robbins solve this guy's marital problems in eight minutes. Okay. Yeah, right. The other cool thing that I found out about him is the hot coals. He's famous for having people walk over hot coals and it's supposed to show that you're, what is it? I don't know, facing your fears. There's a religious group in Greece, an offshoot of the Orthodox Church, that people have been walking on hot coals for hundreds of years, and they've tried to ban it. The thing is, they've done research. If you have a small amount of pain, it increases your bonding. You know, you have to say to yourself, well, this is why I'm feeling the pain. You release endorphins. And you can do that verbally, too. You know, a lot of gurus point out everything that's wrong with the audience. They open a wound in the audience. I am aware of the study that shared struggle creates a bond because, you know, I do a lot of work with Spartan and the races, and that wasn't something... We knew in the early days, but one of the interviews with a social scientist said that you get two people to do wall sits next to each other for 90 seconds, even if they don't, you, you know the study, even if they don't say a word to each other, they feel more connected. Speaking of Spartan, I wrote about Joe DeSena and I wrote about him very positively. 
So it's no secret. I'm not a huge fan of Tony Robbins' work. I mean, I think a lot of people get value out of what he does. But what I don't love about him, just sort of for my own personal taste, is that he gets people into that transcendent state and they feel they're going to change their lives. But the minute they get back out into the real world, and I feel like he knows this, they can't sustain it. So they come back and buy more products. And I don't know what he really delivers other than basically a secular religion, which is fine. People need that. Joe DeSena, you know, really delivers good health. I mean, the people who get involved with his programs, they lose weight in a healthy way. They become more limber. They age better. You know, they eat better. But he uses many of the same strategies for good. I mean, again, the bonding, the chanting, the packaging. I mean, I talk about how it used to be called peak and it didn't do very well. And then he attached himself to this ancient tradition of Sparta and it went through the roof. And Tony Robbins is not a bad guy. I just don't like what he does. But then there are people like the Reverend Sung Young Moon who do these things, who is a terrible person. So it really does span. These are three people who I think are along the realm of good, mediocre, and very negative, and they all do the exact same stuff. So I'm really curious about one thing you said. You mentioned this confidence that they don't have any self-doubt. And at the same time, there's this whole movement right now that vulnerability is like the way to be and to gain support and attention and followers. Are these just two different methods or do they contradict each other? Yeah, I mean, I think there are guidelines and there are rules, but I think it's important to look at how people talk about vulnerability. So if Tony Robbins got up on stage and said, you know, according to one point of view, and this is just one man's point of view. You should, uh, you know, do X, Y, and Z to help your mental health. You know, we're all looking for answers. We have enough uncertainty in our lives. So, you know, you might have a nice discussion with that person, but you're not going to consider him a prophet. But if you look at the way most of these people talk about vulnerability, it's very strategic. So a great example of this is James Altucher. He always talks about all his failures, but as a result, you identify with him. But those were failures of the past. So now you can say, I'm like this guy, you know, I look at him, I like James Altucher better than Tony Robbins. But part of that is that his hype just works on me. He's a Jewish guy from the Northeast. My hair used to look a lot like him before it started falling out. You know, he talks a lot, but he's not one of these gravelly voiced Tony Robbins. But he can say, I went bankrupt three times. I messed up here. I messed up there. And then I say to myself, oh, I can be like him. Because you look to a Tony Robbins and you say, well, I can never be like him. And some people want that. They want to be part of that coterie. But for other people, it's, hey, I see this person who really struggled and then they had a rebirth. Now they have all the answers. So, for example, James Altucher's book is not called You Should Maybe Choose Yourself If It Feels Like the Right Thing to Do, right? <laughs> it's called Choose Yourself, a Good direct point. command. Very and he good says, point. college right. is yeah. bad. Yeah. He will tell you that. He will say, college is a bad idea. I tell my kids not to go to college. But he had to learn. He had to go through the hero's journey to get there. So I think that's really the way it works. I think just being open with your neuroses in any just willy-nilly form and not telling people you don't really know what you're talking about, even though that's most accurate, won't get you any followers. I like that. That's really good advice. Probably advice I should <laughs> take a little bit myself. So we can't go through all 12, but what are a couple of the others that might be fun to deconstruct and talk about? I'll tell you one called milk before meat. Give the babies their milk before you give them their meat. So what I like to tell people is if you have an idea that's truly odd and unusual and new and 
as they like to say now, disruptive, you're going to scare people off. Because even if your idea is good, our cortisol levels go up when change is introduced very quickly. So you have to give the babies their milk before you give them their meat. You got to introduce things in increments. You know, if you're starting this bold new consulting coaching program, start with language they understand. Start with an assessment that looks like something they've already taken. And if your stuff is run of the mill but effective, go crazy. Give it a brand new name, you know, use uniforms, whatever. Because mostly we hear about how you need to differentiate. And you're kind of saying, like, if you're really out there, you need to do the opposite. I think so, because the differentiating is baked in. You know, I mean, another group that does this very, very well, religions do this well, because inherently new religions have unusual ideas. If you go into a Scientology center, it doesn't feel like a church. They've got personality tests. They never talk about spiritual type stuff. They use scientific language. They use acronyms. The walls are white. They use technology, e-meters. It looks like a corporate center or at best a self-help thing. And as a result, people go there and they say to themselves, and, and, you know, a lot of people get something out of this. You know, they go there and they learn a little bit about themselves. They learn some positive thinking stuff, some personal betterment stuff. They get a nice shiny brochure. But, you know, if you stay in the church for a long time, they teach you that there are aliens on the lip of a volcano that cause all of the negative thoughts in the world. And L. Ron Hubbard is the Messiah, you know, and all of this stuff, where is if you tried to tell that to someone right off the bat, that's pretty differentiated. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's true. (laughs) Excellent point. That's why I'm starting to say, like, marketing is a bad thing. Hype is a good thing. But people hear these marketing terms and these tactics and they don't think about the mass psychology. And this isn't putting you down. We all do this. You know, I did it for many years. You have to differentiate. You need a unique selling proposition. You need to build sales funnels. Always? Do you? Are you thinking about why? Even if everyone else is doing it? But the mass psychology never goes away. The hype is universal. Then you can pick the right tools to further the hype. But it makes you think a little more deeply about what's really at play. Yeah, you know, I took a position quite a few years ago doing social media consulting and some of the paid social for a gubernatorial campaign in Vermont. And it was right at the beginning of Facebook ads. And so I had dug really deep into Facebook ads. And what I found was, You know, the things that you would do to sell sunglasses is you would find a really narrow niche that would give you the best conversion to get people to buy sunglasses. But when you applied that to politics, that's a great example, really got distorted. And I was very fortunate in the candidate that I worked for was actually very conservative, conservative, not politically, but conservative in terms of using this stuff, probably to his detriment. Probably that's why he didn't win. But I think that we also saw some of the advisors who were coming in from D.C. who were pushing some really disturbing stuff that you're talking about. I mean, I think you're saying a couple things. I mean, on one hand, some of these people are completely amoral and anything for power works. And again, I am a big, big, big believer. In fact, that's why I'm in this for establishing a moral code. I mean, to me, the ones who are sinister, they get it naturally. The reason we have to spread these ideas is that the other people don't. But to your point about the sunglasses, why that's such a really a good point is because people really, when they focus on the tactics, which I call marketing instead of hype, 
they overgeneralize. So they'll say, hey, we cracked the technological code to Facebook ads without really thinking about why it worked in that situation based on the human psychology. So then they overapply it to everything else. And you see that all the time. I mean, all the people who got onto a social media platform early, the story goes, did really well. So then this thing Clubhouse came out. And I cannot tell you how many people over the course of a week and a half said to me, I'm on Clubhouse. Have you done a Clubhouse? You're really missing out. You don't have a Clubhouse. So by the way, I got in there and it was really fun because of that energy. And because it was before people figured out how to manipulate it, it really did have a sort of natural and varied and organic feel because nobody had figured out how to kind of scam it yet. I think all of these tools are very powerful. There's probably someone out there who continues to make millions of dollars off of Clubhouse. I guess what I'm saying is, you tell a writer, I know how you're going to write your next bestseller. Word processing. I mean, that's the equivalent of what these people are doing. It's a very powerful tool. All of these tools are powerful. But if you don't understand how to tell a good story, that's just efficiency. That just lets you do what you already know how to do differently and better. So these tools are remarkably powerful. I mean, Facebook ads are remarkably powerful, but people go in the wrong direction. They start with marketing and then they think about the hype. But the best promoters, the best attention getters, the best marketers, dare I say it, aren't marketers. There's no one in this book who would say, I'm an awesome marketer, but they've sold millions of dollars and moved millions of people. I would guess most of my listeners are in the content space, whether they're doing it professionally for a business as part of their job or they're indie creators, you know, YouTubers or podcasters or writers, but they're content creators of some kind professionally. What's something that you think they get wrong about this world of hype? I think it's an extension of what we said. I think it's following rules. In other words, there are guidelines, but I'll give you two examples that are often great, but be consistent with your content. People don't say it's a good idea generally. They say you must, above all, be consistent. So you'll get these blogs or podcasts who there's nothing really going on there, but, you know, gosh darn it, they're going to have something out Tuesday and Thursday. You know what I mean? If they've got the flu, it's going to be out Tuesday and Thursday. And that's admirable, but that doesn't translate into success. And on the other hand, there are people who aren't consistent and they use that strategically. So, you know, Ryan Holiday, he's consistent in other things, but he puts out this book list, this reading list that I really like that I never know when it's going to come out. You know, it comes out when it comes out after he's read a number of books. And as a result, it's like a casino. Like one day I'll wake up and the thing's in my inbox and that's cool. Or always have a call to action. Always. So you'll see all these things, www.blahblahblah.com on everything. And can you imagine, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Wu-Tang Clan, but the way that really got famous there were a lot of reasons, but one of the main things, they have this amazing logo. It's a big, legendary yellow and black W, you know, stylized thing. And they would go to Staten Island and at eye level on every lamppost, put this W up everywhere. I am telling you, if that said www.wutang.com splashed all over it. Would have destroyed it. Yeah. Instead, people were saying, what is this? This is cool. A story I tell in my book, you know, there was this group of young people in the 70s started a magazine, but they didn't tell anyone it was a magazine. They called it Punk Magazine, and it was covering the new music on the scene at the time in downtown Manhattan. 
So they put posters up everywhere that said punk is coming, punk is coming. And the thing about the word punk, we now think of it as a genre, but a punk was like, you know, punk, a dirty individual. And, and it just, it means like a scumbag, you know? And it actually meant something worse originally. So people would see this punk is coming. What is What is punk? Punk, you know, is this a band? Is this some gang? Like punk is coming. And it was really cool looking. And then the magazine came out and everyone snatched it up. I mean, if they had immediately had a call to action telling people where to go to what newsstand, it would have just been an advertisement. So I think people follow rules very blindly because people have told them to do it and they lose the spontaneity and the playfulness and the psychological sophistication that this stuff often you know, relies upon. I'm all about grounded content, right? Which is almost the opposite of hype. So how would you hype being grounded? Yeah, I mean, I would ask yourself, and you've probably done this in one form or another, but I would ask yourself two questions. And this is hype principle number one. This is make war, not love. I would say, what is a point of view in my industry that I completely disagree with that actually gets me angry? So many. There's so Yeah, so and many. so then match it with what, what is on the... Uh, <laughs> What's a point of view on the other side that I'm 100% confident is the case? Because, you know, grounded content, I don't think it is the opposite of hype, because what you're basically saying is all this gobbledygook about content that everyone is putting out there is a bunch of nonsense. It's like the slow food movement. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Slow growth, slow food, all that. Yes. Well, you know, I live in Vermont, so. So you were inspired by all the right people. Yeah. I really enjoyed that conversation with Michael, thinking about how you can structure your own hype, these tools, and how we have certain negative associations with some of the tools when really they just are tools and we need to use them for some of the better purposes. Thank you again for listening. I truly appreciate you. If you think this information would be helpful for someone, please pass it along. Now, speaking of hype, some of you have podcasts and some of you are wondering why you're not getting the results from them that you're looking for. There are lots of hacks and hype tactics, techniques that you can use to bring people to find your show. But what about the show itself? How many of you have done really deep work to really elevate your craft, the quality of the show itself? I'm starting a 90-day cohort-based, group-based process You can do all the work in the world to bring people to your show, but if the show isn't serving them in the way they need to be served, they won't stay for more. So how do you figure that out? How do you use your data to understand what your audience is looking for? How do you structure your show in a way that gets people to stay and keep coming back? How you find your personal voice, your take on the world so that you can serve your community, whatever those business or personal goals are. Those are the kinds of things we're going to talk about. This small group cohort is starting mid-January, and this is the first time I've done it. So I'm actually selling this process at almost 50% of the normal price because I want your feedback. So what you get with this first session is a ton of extra attention from me at a strongly discounted rate. And what I get is feedback from you so that the next time I run this session at full price, I know that I'm making it exactly the way I need to. If you want to find out more about that, reach out to me any place you find me on social media or go to madmotion.com and click on the Grow Your Podcast tab. See you next time.